Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Investigate beautifully detailed scenes of the 1920s, finding out what happened to her or your in the game, sister. With hundreds of mind-teasing puzzles, the next clue is always within reach. Search for hidden objects from the parlours of New York to the sidewalks of Paris. Each chapter uncovers a collection of dazzling hidden object spectacles for you to solve, and I've had a lot of fun. Currently on chapter 7, making progress little by little, tapping away on my phone to get all the puzzle pieces in place. While searching for the murderer, or whatever happened to your sister, you get to decorate your own island with gardens and buildings and chat and play with other Others by joining a detective club. It's a lot of fun and very social. I play while I'm on the train. It keeps me active between my journeys to London and I love the time limits that are pushing me to find those clues. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Welcome to another episode of On the Edge with Andrew Gold. I'm Andrew Gold, obviously, and I have an episode today with John Atak, who is a famous expert on cults and who was in Scientology. He's an expert in all sorts of things as well, from authoritarianism to retro music references, although we don't go into those today. But I've had John on a couple of times before, and it's always a pleasure to have a chat with him. He was in Scientology for some time. He talks about how he got involved in it, what attracted him to it, and how he left. But he also wants to talk about why Scientology is the most dangerous kind of brainwashing in the world basically. Really, really interesting. Uh, Do go check out his YouTube channel, John Atak Family and Friends, and get hold of his book, A Piece of Blue Sky, which exposes L. Ron Hubbard, the leader of Scientology. Hope you guys enjoy this. Loads of big episodes coming up. I'm setting up a whole new studio where I am, which is uh, in a new home and everything which is an ordeal trying to keep up with it and get all the guests ready and speak to everyone in this sort of ever-changing landscape that is my home of course a landscape makes it sound far larger than it is it is just a home but uh, i've been getting all these kinds of acoustic panels that i'm going to be setting up in the coming days and weeks it's going to sound and look fantastic i hope thank you guys for all of your support please sign up on patreon.com slash andrew gold just to support the podcast it's a big help and always is and please if you're listening on apple leave a review loads of big stuff coming up as i say but now You're on the edge of a piece of blue sky and Scientology and its dangerous brainwashing with John Atak. First, I want to ask you, John, a little bit about what got you into Scientology, because John is a former Scientologist. What what got you there in the first place? Well, it's a very long time ago. It was 1974. I'd come back from uh, being abandoned in Toulouse for six weeks, where I'd 
playing drums in a band and I'd, I'd had a week of not eating and then I got home and my girlfriend had disappeared and I found out that she was moving to New Zealand with one of my mates and uh, we'd been living together 15 months so this was a bit bit odd and um, so I, I cast around looking for a solution to that and sadly found a copy of a book called Science of Survival by Ron Hubbard. Read the first half of that which is it's about the only sensible book that's marketed under Hubbard's name. Uh, it wasn't written by him. It was written by a man called Richard DeMille, who was the son of Cecil B. DeMille, the director. So there you go. There's a little ah, uh, cinema cool. fact for you. And uh, it seemed like a sense of walk. I went in. These people were really sweet and charming. They were largely graduates of what was then Bournemouth Polytechnic uh, in art subjects. So got on with them like a house on fire. And uh, didn't do anything to help my distress about my girlfriend. <laughs> about a year later, I realised it was a really good thing that, that we weren't together anymore. Um, so it never addressed that. I was nine years involved, um, never a living member, never the kind of brainwashed zombie that does exactly what they're told, which is the image that people seem to have of cult members, sadly. It's like, it's fine to say that you're suffering from a mental illness these days, and, and so it should be. You shouldn't be, you know, if you're depressed or something like that, you should be able to say that. But if you say you've been in a cult, oh, oh no, you know, get out the crucifix and the garlic and, and stop this person. So anyway, I had nine years of that. I did... 25 of the then 27 available levels of Scientology. So I am technically a clear and an operating Thetan level five. So um, watch out, you know, supernatural abilities. That's high. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it cost a lot less than it costs now. It costs you about half a million quid to, to get to that these days. Um, my total spend in... What was it back well, then? My total spend in nine years was £9,000. Um, which is still too much. Okay, and accounting for inflation. Yeah, that's uh, it'd be a bit more than that now uh, if you go and check it online. Um, but nonetheless, I, I, I didn't, I wasn't abused or humiliated. I, I've realised since having talked with more than a thousand Scientologists that I seem to be unique in that regard. <laughs> that you know, unless you're Tom Cruise or you know John Travolta. All sorts of horrible things happened to you. The worst thing that happened to me was having 13 hours in a sales interview. And uh, this money lender called Lee Lawrence had come round with one of their salespeople to sell me on buying, I think it was six or seven thousand pounds worth of stuff. And he got a cheque already written in my name. And um, it was only going to be 30% ah. a year interest. <laughs> and so I had 13 hours of that. And at the end of 13 hours, I still hadn't taken the cheque. So. <laughs> Um, despite the brainwashing. Did you nearly take no. it? No. Never came close. It was a ridiculous idea. So you just have to sit there. You have to sit there for 13 hours. Well, then. I didn't have to. I, 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 could have, I could have said I've had enough of this and go, but they seemed to want to exhaust themselves, and, and so they did. I, I afterwards dealt with many people who'd borrowed money from Lee Lawrence at these extortionate rates, and they'd say to me, John, what do we do about this? And I said, you don't pay them back. <laughs> They're not legal contracts. <laughs> So, I mean, oh, wow. hopefully, you know, Bloody 40 hell. years later, as he was about 70 then, he's no longer with us. So he won't sue me for, for you know, insulting him deeply, which, which is what should happen. But hard selling is a major <laughs> aspect to Scientology. You know, uh, Hubbard is very insistent on yeah. it. So I basically I went through it in 1983. It was just getting nasty. You know, there's a lot of bullying and shouting going on and it's already bad enough that they were wearing sailor suits and all of this kind of thing 
and I just went Hubbard must be gone we've you know there are about half the membership left at that time there may maybe at most 50,000 people in Scientology then despite their claims to five seven eight or eleven million um, and about half of us left a lot just kind of back into the woodwork gone don't want anything to do with it but some of us really believed and I was a true believer and that's how I left and a few months after I left I had a dump of documents brought to me and read through them and realized that Elrond Hubbard was a liar and as his essential principle is honesty is sanity <laughs> and as he said uh, the road to truth must be trod with true steps I kind of went he's a liar what really got me and this is to me the most important thing is that I then went to other people who believed and showed them the evidence that proved beyond any shadow of a doubt that Hubbard was a liar. That material is things he said that contradict other things he said. So there's a document called My Philosophy which is displayed handwritten at St Hill in East Grinstead down here in, in Sussex, down there in Sussex. And in it, he says that he was crippled and blinded with injured optic nerves and physical injuries to hip and back. I'm not sure what other kind of injuries you can have other than physical injuries. And I think it may tell us that he was making something up. So at the end of the war, he was crippled and blinded in Oaknell Hospital. Then in another place, in a, a professional auditor's bulletin called Communication and Isness, he says... Uh, that on July 25th, he went down to Hollywood, 1945, he went down to Hollywood and beat up three petty officers. So you're going, so you're crippled and blinded by what, August the 14th, the end of the war, but on July the 25th, and without seeing any combat in between, you beat up three petty officers. And even that's a lie. There were two petty officers involved in the fight and he didn't beat them up. I did my work. I then became the historian of Scientology. I, nobody else has done it. Um... <laughs> I trawled, you know, no internet. So I would write to the Montana Historical Society. I got his Navy records, his FBI records. I cite 150 people that I, I either interviewed or, you know, read testimony or, or, or books by um, to construct my book, Let's Sell These People a Piece of Blue Sky, which is a quotation from Ron Hubbard. On the day that he opened his first foundation, in April 1950 in Elizabeth, New Jersey, he said to the guy next to him, just he's about to open the doors, let's sell these people a piece of blue sky. And I think they've been selling it ever since. So I became the historian of the movement. I became the biographer of Ron Hubbard. I worked with um, the Sunday Times journalist Russell Miller on his, what a fantastic title, Bare-Faced Messiah, you know, which is still remains the biography of Hubbard. It's based on, on my book, and I worked with him from the point where he was given the contract by the Sunday Times right through to the court cases where uh, I was given expert witness status in the High Court in London on Scientology, uh, which means that what I say about Scientology can be taken to be true. Can I just say about Blue Sky? So when he says that, I think I know what the metaphor is. It's like, is it saying, let's sell these people something they already have? It's right there. Is that, is that what that, is that, what that there, means? There are two specific references. The first is the, the guy he told it to, Don Rogers, who, who told me, um, said that, that he was talking about selling them memberships so that they wouldn't get anything. And, and Scientology now, you have patrons, patrons meritorious, patrons this. And it's actually an amount of money that you've given 
Nancy Cartwright, the voice of Bart Simpson, boasts that she's given $21 million to Scientology. Uh, Leia Remini, who is now a troublemaker when it comes to Scientology, admits that on a single day she gave them a million dollars. So, and for that, you get a little label. I, I, I met this guy and he'd given them £35,000 towards building a new organisation, which would be called an ideal organisation. And in return, in perpetuity, he would have a car parking space there. So every life when he was reborn, <laughs> this car parking space would be renewed. S sadly, he left Scientology and... By the time I met him, he was working two jobs to pay off the money he borrowed. Oh man! So, so that's the, so the blue sky. Just to be the metaphor there. I'm just making sure I got the metaphor right. Is like because you've already got blue sky, but we're making you pay for it. Well, we'll sell you something that's blue sky. It's just uh, it doesn't. It, it's it's already yours. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Exactly. There is of course a secondary meaning, which which is BS. Blue sky. I see. Okay. Yeah. I like that because then he's also quoted as saying, uh, "I think. Am I right about this? That." Um, if you want to make, if you want to get rich, make a religion or something like that. Yeah, to make a million, start a religion. Russell and I found four people he'd told that to in the 1940s. And Scientology came back and said, no, he didn't say it. George Orwell did. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, you can't repeat something that's already been said. So that's true. Wow. So, so he just, he knew it. So that must have been quite upsetting for you when you came to realise that it was all BS, blue sky, and then you were telling other people. What did that teach you about other people when they wouldn't accept what you were telling them? Well, it, you know, I then, it's a long time ago, you know, I left nearly 40 years, 40 years ago in, in October. And so I've had a long time to study psychology and understand what happens when, when people become embedded in a belief. And this is cognitive dissonance, that if somebody has a strong belief and you give them evidence that they're wrong, it'll strengthen their belief. So you have to go at it a little bit, bit more carefully. Frequently, when you know, a mem member of a family joins a, an authoritarian cult, the family will try and argue. They'll get newspaper articles, they'll, they'll buy my book, whatever, and they'll try and argue with the person to convince them. It will almost always fail because of cognitive dissonance and so you have to get to it another way you have to uh, create a relationship with the person where they're willing to accept your authority and as a family member you probably can't do that it's very difficult um, whereas if an outsider like me comes in and I haven't done this kind of work for a long time but I did if somebody comes in who obviously knows a great deal about the subject then it becomes possible to um, tease away at the edges. But you do that by paralleling. You don't go directly at the group. You go at the manifestations, the things that the group does. So what I used to do, I'd, I'd show people uh, this video. It's on my channel. It's a Canadian video called um, Captive Minds, Hypnosis and Beyond. And it shows what incredible clothes people used to wear in 1982 with huge lapels and fuzzy hair and things like that. But if you can get past that, the material in it is pretty good. It, it teaches you about you know, the way that hypnosis or brainwashing, if you like, is used. And I'd then move on to uh, a, a video called My Dance Is Now Complete about Rajneesh, uh, which shows some of the tricks and traps of that. It was really weird that Wild Wild Country it went sit, ran six hours and didn't tell you anything about what the Rajneeshis do. It was just the 
the former executive committee of the Rajneeshis bickering with each other as to whether they still believed in Rajneesh or not. But by showing that video, which is, you know, the orange people, they, they look so different to Scientologists. And at the end of watching that video, Scientologist I was dealing with would say, well, no, that's nothing like us. And I'd be able to say, well, you know, they do talk about the poodle press. So that attitude towards the media never being correct, that's common. And they'd say, yeah. Then I'd show them the shrinking world of Elrond Hubbard, which again is on my channel. And it's 20 minutes. It's the only hostile interview that, that Hubbard did with a wonderful man called Charlie Nairn uh, back in 1968. And in it, he admits to having a first and a third wife. He says, I had no second wife. And he's told you about two marriages. So he's, he's basically, I had a first marriage. <laughs> I didn't have a second marriage. And now I've got the third one. He, he's asked about bank accounts in Switzerland and he says, no, well, I do have one bank account in Switzerland, you know, which you know, he died leaving uh, $648 million, all of it taken from Scientology, had no other revenue source. Um, and he, he also, when he's asked about reincarnation, he pauses when he's asked if he believes in reincarnation. And Charlie says, but your followers believe. And he goes, oh, yes, <laughs> they believe so I, I had a, you know, a lot, I had about 12 years where I was talking about Scientology and um, Scientology critic Arnie Lerma, when asked him for a puff for let's sell these piece, people a piece of blue sky, said before the internet and safety in numbers, there was John Atak. And I wasn't the only one. There were about three other people in the world for that 12 years. Did you get attacked for your for being outspoken about them? Right from the first day and every day thereafter. The, you know, I'd be followed. A private detective called Eugene Ingram toured the whole world to pick up information about me. He went to Australia to find the girl who'd got away when I was 19. Um, he interviewed her mother. He uh, came to my parents' house. Uh, my father was terminally ill at the time and and accused them of growing cannabis, uh, which they weren't. They were growing tomatoes. He was not much of a botanist, Eugene Ingram. And then they published a little pamphlet from all of that. Um, I've been accused of child molesting, rape, attempted murder, uh, heroin addiction, uh, drug dealing. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that kind of scandal campaign is, is a normal way. It's called noisy investigation within Scientology. And... It's important to say here, and I've, there are people who don't believe this, but it is the truth, that I knew nothing about the intelligence agency within Scientology, and nor did any other rank-and-file member. It was only a few worked within it. The same as, you know, we don't tend to know what MI5 and MI6 are doing. Um, I didn't know what they were doing. And when I found out that Hubbard's wife, Mary Sue Hubbard, had signed a stipulation of evidence, more than 200 pages, which I did read in some depth, more than once, admitting to um, kidnapping, false imprisonment, burglary, breaking and entering, uh, bugging, um, theft of government documents, forgery of government credentials. When I found out that Mary Sue Hubbard and 10 others had been sent to prison for that in the US, and a similar case was successful in, in Canada, I realised that I'd not been involved in a religion. I'd been involved in an intelligence agency. And I suppose initially I felt some need to make up, not that I'd done anything horrible when I was a Scientologist, but I wanted to make up for having been part of a dangerous criminal organisation. And I think I've more than done that by now. 
What kinds of what? What is just to give some people an idea? Some of the most dangerous things that Scientology does. I'm, I'm thinking of like ripping families apart, bankrupting people. Some people have died, haven't they? Well, those are among the things. Um, Scientology has a much higher suicide rate than than is average. I think largely because people believe that it will be helpful to them and invest everything into it. And when it doesn't work, you know. Um, they're, they're at the end of their tether and they've got nowhere to go. Um, it also seemed, I mean, in, when I left, there were a large amount of Scientologists who died of cancer. And there were Scientologists who believed, independent Scientologists, who believed that this was something to do with some of the techniques of Scientology. I don't think so. I think it's because people come to believe that Scientology will heal them, despite it making claims that it's not medical in any way. People believe that. So there's a guy called Brown McKee who was a 24-year member. And in 1982, uh, he gave testimony at the Clearwater hearings in Florida against Scientology. And he said that when his wife developed cancer, they went down to the Florida headquarters and they were, they were given the card to go to somewhere, you know, like the Hoxie Clinic, one of these Mexican clinics where they give you apricot kernels or, or something and it's meant to cure you and he said that when they arrived at this place the waiting room was full of high-level Scientologists people like him and his wife who'd done all of Scientology who were meant to have achieved this supernatural state where no disease could could apply to them I think it was just that that they didn't wait you know they waited too long before getting treatment uh so sad and uh, people people speculated about lisa marie presley i think because didn't she die of cancer and then not of not of cancer but uh, john travolta's son i believe was ill and there's a lot of speculation about whether they gave him the right drugs because of scientology and and you'll have a, a straightforward case like karen de la carrier whose, whose son alexander died from a completely treatable illness and he was not given the antibiotics he needed so um and they the treatment of the inner group, and as I say, I, I never belonged to this. This didn't happen to me. I was so, so lucky. But it's called the Sea Organization, C-S-E-A, as in a body of water, um, because Hubbard created his own little navy. And reading the accounts, say, uh, Mike Rinder, good friend of mine, his billion years, where he basically talks about being sold as a slave. You know, at 18 years old, he arrived on Hubbard's ship, to do a management training course so that he could become an executive in Australia. And his passport was taken from him. And he was told that he'd been traded, that the Australian organisation had traded him for some free courses. <laughs> and now he belonged to this organisation. He had no money. There's no way he could get out. And his story is one of thousands where people have been trafficked, um, which hopefully will come home to roost soon. Wow. You know, somebody will do something about it. It's, it's outrageous. And, and Mike Rinder as well is somebody currently going through uh, cancer at the moment. So our, our thoughts are, are with him. Yeah, he has esophageal cancer and, and we, we believe that, that he, we think he's going to be OK. We think he's caught it early enough. And, and he's you know, just fascinating character. We, we met once while, while he was in Scientology and he was for 20 years running harassment. And um, which got, you know, pretty difficult at times, I must say. And we met once. He and a bunch of them flew in from LA and wanted to meet me and, and settle everything with me. And I sat in a room with them. And he said that on that day, although I seemed like a nice guy and, and you know relatively smart and what have you, that he would he would have destroyed me. 
because I was an impediment to man's only hope of survival. And to then come to get to know this man as a friend and realise that, that he is, he's actually an empath. He's a really empathetic person who was then weaponized by Scientology. And I think this is often the case, that people who are empathetic are, they're sold some perverted idea of people who were, you know, 45% of medical doctors in Germany joined the Nazi party. So, you know, an education is not going to stop it. And even in the caring professions, you're not necessarily, you're going to believe this nonsense that was told. You can take, take people who are, they really want to do good in the world and you sell them on some crazy idea that does harm. Um, and that's what happened to Mike Rinder. We have a, an extensive piece on Holocaust denial on my channel um, because it, of all things that offend me, nothing bothers me more than, than Holocaust denial. The idea that the most witnessed event in history, you know, there are, what, 180,000 testimonies? That people are still go. oh no it didn't happen <laughs> but then I, I also have an issue I don't want to get too sidetracked but I, I also don't necessarily like that like in Germany it's a um, you know you can go to prison for, oh that's silly isn't that. it and you know my family's Jewish I'm yeah I think I think that's that's too much as I don't I, 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 you know you should be able to say the most horrible things in the world I think that's just my opinion yeah yeah free freedom of speech and if, if yes and I think you know the the guy the professor who was sent to prison in France for Holocaust denial and Noam Chomsky of all people went and talked on his behalf and people are saying but he's a fascist and how can you do this and Chomsky is saying it's a stupid idea you know saying that that you can't express an opinion and I think we saw with David Irving that you can actually deconstruct the stupidity face to face in a courtroom and and show that the man uh, was was absolutely wrong so yeah um yeah all for free. That's a brilliant film, isn't it? Uh, Denial. Yeah. Ra Rachel Wise and, uh, did that. Uh, did that film. Timothy Spall. Timothy Spall. That's right. amazing. He's fantastic. He's wonderful. Yeah. So, so th this is something I've struggled with sometimes because I've interviewed, as you know, a lot of ex-Scientologists and a lot of them who are a lot deeper than you were and who were in the Sea Org and who must have been through, I mean, as you say, through... Uh, you know, wishful thinking and magical thinking and wanting to do good and, and, you know, expressing empathy have been horrible and have really screamed at people and punched them and done horrible things. And uh, it's so funny to see. I suppose I'm not really asking a question here. I'm just sort of continuing the conversation. But just to say it's so funny to see when I speak to these people, whether it be Mike Rinder in particular, because I think he was a real attack dog at that time. Uh, and to think, well, he's so nice and, and lovely to everyone but he did all these horrible things and i don't know how to sort of square that with myself you know it's difficult and i mean a lot of people have criticized mike um and said you know he shouldn't be he should apologize more and as mike says you know how many times you know he has not only you know and my point of view is that because he stood up against them and he's been willing to speak out about them that he's paid his dues that and and we we have to allow for that we have to allow for redemption if we don't as a society then well we better just start killing people fundamentally as many as we can um because if people can't be redeemed if they can't get better if they can't change then what's the point it also makes uh, an apology useless doesn't it i, I know uh, ricky gervais was talking about i can't remember what actor it was it might have been K 
Kevin Hart or someone, somebody had said something homophobic and, and bad as a tweet. It was a joke, but it was it was bad taste. And uh, he apologized, I think, at the time. And then the Oscars were going to make him the host. This was 10 years later. And they realized these old tweets had cropped up. And they said, we need you to make an, a public apology. And he said, well, I have done. And what use is an apology if you've then got to do it every 10 years? I meant it when I apologize. That should be enough. But sometimes we want more, don't we? We're like, no, apologize again. You offended my sensibility. You know, even though, you know, it wasn't right what he did, but I guess he apologized. Yeah, it it is difficult, isn't it? That, um, and, if it and if the apology is insincere, that's another matter. But where somebody realizes they've done something stupid. Yeah. I mean, the weirdest one that I've I've heard recently is the British Library. The British Library have a blacklist of 300 authors. And uh, Carol Hughes, the widow of the poet Ted Hughes, realized that her husband was on this list. And when she asked for a justification as to why he's on a list of um, colonialists and uh, slave traders, um, she was told that in 1592... A relative of his, not an ancestor of his, uh, had bought shares in the Africa Trading Company in time of Queen Elizabeth. And therefore, now, the British Library apologised. The apology was published in The Guardian. But let me tell you, I've been trying to get that list from the British Library for almost a year. And they will not give it to me, uh, despite freedom of information. Um, because they don't, you know, and so we've got to this situation now. Well, you've got the same name. Your name is Gold. Well, there was a man called Gold once who said something racist. So therefore, we're not talking to you. It, it's, it's gone out of all proportion. Um, where we go from here, I don't know. But, but it, it does get kind of silly as to what we're meant. You know, we're meant to be apologising for something that somebody else did <laughs> hundreds of years ago that we didn't even know about. Uh, talking about collective guilt. Yeah. You know? It reminds me of the, the changing of the like, Roald Dahl texts, um, changing his words and things like that. Like, I understand you could have a note at the beginning saying, hey, sensibilities have changed and this is a, you know, but it's a historical document. And Roald Dahl had some appalling views. But, and you can put a note at the beginning saying that if you want. But to change his words, to me, that's really chilling. It's really, or, or, I know this is overused as a word, but it's very Orwellian. Yeah. And uh, by the way, George Orwell is on the British Library blacklist. Oh, for God's sake. That, that, there's nothing more Orwellian than that. Do you know that for a fact? It was published by the Guardian newspaper alongside an apology from the British Library. So uh, the British Library <laughs> did not respond to that and, and, and question it. So, yes, I presume it to be true. Yeah, Lord Byron and Oscar oh, Wilde were on the those list. baddies. Terrible people. That's just... it's. <laughs> incredible that's just incredible well, lord byron was a bit of a scallywag wasn't he He was a scallywag but but you know I, so many of our artists if we're going to look into how their lives are and we're going to make moral judgments about how they behaved <laughs> then there wouldn't be very many pictures left in our galleries i'm afraid you know that that's my primary subject art history and the the lives of the artists like benvenuto cellini for example in his autobiography explains that ground diamonds are a much better thing to put in somebody's food if you want to kill them than ground glass or caravaggio who killed two people in jewels you know there, there are some pretty ugly things out there um or richard dad who in fact killed his own dad um but you know we 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 have to look at the work and we if we can understand the artist, the person who did it, but it doesn't mean that we should reject 
the work that they did i don't think no it's it just seems it just seems mad we don't learn from history um you're on today one of the reasons one of the things that we wanted to talk about today was um why scientology is one of the most dangerous forms of brainwashing what what led you to want to talk about that today well uh the the fiction writer somerset Maugham, who's known for i know books like the razor's edge of human bondage um his incredible story rain um cynical old guy who when brainwashing in 1950 suddenly this word emerged in the west actually not through edward hunter as people keep telling us but through the guardian newspaper in january 1950 the word was first used there you go factoid um when this word emerged what he wanted to point out was that whatever the chinese and maybe the north koreans were doing and maybe the russians were doing it had been done before and this wasn't new and he said that the most effective form of brainwashing ever devised by man was the spiritual exercises of Ignatius Loyola. And this book is still in print. It has what is called the Nihil Obstat uh, of the Pope. Uh, this particular translation given in 1963 that there is no objection to this book being published and read by Catholics. It has some pretty... I'm just going to grab a couple of things. The whole book is is very interesting this was the it's from the 16th century the counter-reformation um ignatius Loyola is the founder of the jesuits the society of jesus and so he puts people through visualizations you know they weren't invented in modern times so you have to imagine being in hell can you do that for me just imagine being in hell and you have to see and imagine those enormous fires and the souls as it were with bodies of fire you have to hear in imagination the shrieks and groans and the blasphemous shouts against Christ our Lord and all the saints. And you have to smell in imagination the fumes of sulphur and the stench of filth and corruption and on and on. So you've got these visualizations and the idea is basically you've converted to the Protestant faith and you're going to hell. So by doing these exercises, you can come back to the, the true faith um, then he talks about penances, so you've got to treat yourself badly. You have to eat too little food. That's a good start. You have to s not sleep enough. And um, then the, the third form is to chastise the body by inflicting actual pain on it. That is done by wearing hair shirts or cords or iron chains, by scourging or beating ourselves and by other kinds of harsh treatment. Now, Baron Sasha von Massoch hadn't written about masochism at this time, but one does really wonder what these people were doing. Um, then we have... Um, and this, this is where we come to brainwashing. To arrive at complete certainty, this is the attitude of mind we should maintain. I will believe that the white object I see is black if that should be the decision of the hierarchical church. For I believe that linking Christ our Lord, the bridegroom, and his bride, the church, there is one and the same spirit, ruling and guiding us for our soul's good. So I will, I will believe that white is black if the church says so. Now, this has a very direct link to Scientology. Um, after I left, and I don't think it's because I left, but after I left, uh, Ron Hubbard introduced what's called the Truth Rundown. And um, Chris Shelton did a talk on this uh, thing I did in Toronto in 2015. And that was the first time I'd heard about it. 
And basically, you make a complaint about, say, David Miscavige or somebody in Scientology, then you have to go into through this procedure where you come to understand that it didn't happen, that you're wrong, and that you now accept that the truth is whatever you've been told. Now, that is the most extreme form of brainwashing possible, where um, it, it's called Ideology Over Experience by Robert J. Lifton, where you become willing to um, give up what you've actually experienced and know because the church, whether it's the Catholic Church or Scientology's supposed church, insists that that's the way it is. Um, with Scientology, I, I'm working on a piece, uh, I'm, I'm doing a show with Eric Hunley next week, and he brought up this idea, um, that there's a book called Chaos by a man called Tom O'Neill. The Times Literary Supplement called this book a masterpiece, and um, Eric said, oh, it says your, your late friend Jolly West programmed Charles Manson. And I'm like, what are you talking about? So I went off and, and read this book, and it, the, the web of speculation that is there. Um, but one thing that is essential, and last week Psychology Today pulled a paragraph from a piece Steve Hassan had written, in which he said Charles Manson received 150 hours of Scientology auditing. Now, I sent Psychology Today, this, the day it happened, I sent them the actual internal document from Scientology that says Charles Manson received 150 hours of Scientology auditing and got a response saying, we don't have time to look at books and chapters. So it was one page, it was one line underlined. It was a, a letter sent to Mary Sue Hubbard. I, as I say, I'm an expert witness, so I, I am allowed to submit documents as fact. But Psychology Today were like, they might sue us, you know, they, they might cost us money. We, we can't do that. And in this case, it was a female editor, so Burke has to be slightly... Evil triumphs when men and women of good do nothing. And you know, that's generally what we see with Scientology, that they, they silence people through the threat of litigation. Thankfully, that seems to have slowed down since they lost the time suit in 2011, which I'm told cost them $20 million in legal fees. And David Miscavige went, I think I'd rather keep the money. You know, I'm wasting time and it's not getting us any good press, you know, and this Danny Masterson stuff. What are we going to do about that? You know, um, so this Charlie Manson issue is is a very big issue. But the thought is that Charles Manson, from the age of 12 into his, well, it was uh, 32 when he came out of prison, 31, 32. From the age of 12 till then, he'd spent more time in institutions than out. He was a small guy. He was beaten up a lot. He had a very hard time. Then in 1962 at McNeil Institute, as he says in his own autobiography, which is not mentioned at all in Tom O'Neill's book, you know, the fact that Manson wrote an autobiography should be interesting to a student of Manson. And in there, he four times mentions Scientology. And at one point says, you know, I got heavily into Dianetics and Scientology. In Scientology's own documents, seized during the FBI's largest raids in the FBI's history in 1977. In their own documents, there are four pieces, one of which is, oops, we found out the Manson was involved. How do we stop the public from getting this information? Uh, the second is a write-up by Lania Raymer, who's the man who gave Manson this stuff. 
Um, and then you have a write-up to Mary Sue Hubbard, which is the thing that I sent the page from, saying he did all of this stuff. And then an affidavit from Lania Raymer saying that he had no author authorization from Scientology t to give this to Manson. But what happened in 1962 for Manson was that he learned how to control people. You know, that Tom O'Neill doesn't mention Scientology in his book. Um, instead, he goes after my, my late chum, Jolly West, and builds this little fabric of speculation. Uh, brilliant research book, but, but his speculation is, is wrong. It, plain and simple, it's wrong. And I can kind of will prove it to next week. But the idea that you can take somebody like Charlie Manson, who's, who's a little guy who's, who's been picked on all of his life, and he learns how to exert control over others by using Scientology. Because Scientology is a set of control techniques. Hubbard, there's, there's no secret about it. Hubbard talks about having 8C. Uh, he had this perverse thing that he, he kept turning the infinity symbol upright and calling it an 8. I don't know why. It looks like an 8, I suppose. But he wrote lots of books called 8 This and 8 That. And the idea is that... So 8C means infinite control and what you're being taught as a Scientologist is how to use your intention to make another person do something which is a fundamental definition of magic of course and about as likely to happen and what you find as you said in the C organization is that people will have been learned how to receive severe reality adjustments I'd never heard of these until my last year in Scientology when um, I hired a guy who had been a Hubbard aide. He'd worked directly with Hubbard. He was very famous. I hired him for my little artist agency. And one day, caught him screaming his head off at my wife because she hadn't sold a painting that week. And he was like this far away from her, telling her that she was trying to destroy me and trying to ruin the world at the top of his voice. Three days later, next time I saw him, I sat him down and went, why did you do that? You know, where is it written that you should do that? Because in Scientology, if it isn't written, it isn't true. So where's the policy where Hubbard explains to do that? And he put his head in his hands and started weeping. And he said, Hubbard did it to us. And after that, you know, I've now interviewed tens of people where Hubbard just had these maniac rages. You know, this man who'd said he was going to help us all overcome trauma was you know, throwing people into the sewage in Corfu Harbour from from his boat uh, from 25 feet up into human sewage in the harbour. He was putting a four-year-old in the chain locker of the ship. He was traumatising people and he did it on an almost daily basis. He was either in a, you know, a happy um, sort of delirious mood or, or he was attacking somebody, he was going for somebody. And so that becomes a characteristic this is how infinite control is achieved. You bully people until you break them. And then they will keep, you know, David Miscavige kept all of these people, what, eight years in the hole in this double trailer. Mike says that there were 140 people in there at one point. And they're all, these are the senior executives of Scientology and they're living in there with two toilet cubicles going off and having showers when they're allowed and doing things like um, cleaning the, the, the floor with, with a, a toothbrush, you know, and um, basically being humiliated and, and dominated to make them slaves. 
And I think if we look at the present situation of Scientology, where quite evidently from the defectors we've seen really in, in the last 40 years, the horrific conditions that people have submitted to. So when Hubbard was making little films in 1977, none of which survive, millions were spent on these, these films. And even David Miscavige is too embarrassed to show them to anybody. They're so awful. I saw a couple of them along the way. Um, but the crew there, Hubbard decided that they weren't working hard enough. So they were not only forbidden any pay and put onto a rice and beans diet, which was quite normal, they were told they couldn't have any toilet tissue. So they had to go off and raid, you know, yellow page directories from, you know, phone boxes and things like that. He, as I say, oh. died with $648 million, 2,000 cameras, a 24-track recording studio, a full-size horse racing track, Aberdeen Angus Bulls, Black Swans. He lived that way with Savile Row shirts and didn't allow the crew toilet paper. When you've reduced people to that level... They are enslaved, technically. You know, they're practically. They're they're not. You know, they're earning a lot of money. That's basically keeping David Miscavige in um, distilled water, Blue Mountain coffee, and Camel cigarettes. I, it, it gets me. Both Hubbard and Miscavige are asthmatics. So, and heavy smokers. And you're going. So there's a Ventolin inhaler in one hand and a Camel cigarette in the other. And you're going. And this is the superhuman state that you've achieved. You know, you're an addict. <laughs> Presumably, it's it's got to be more complicated than than sort of bullying. There's got to be a bit of status stuff going on, and people want to. And and you know, the, I know the Stanford prison experiment. That's a bit flawed, flawed, and it wasn't quite as good as people thought it was. But there's a little bit of you know hierarchies and stuff. I'd stop there on Zimbardo's experiment. I, I think it's every bit as 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 good as it it's said to be. There are only two complaints that I'm aware of um, with Zim's work there. And one of them is that one of the guards was coached to be more harsh. There's a tape recording of that, which I'm aware of, I've heard. Um, and it did happen. Um, that tape, of course, we have because Zimbardo released it. We wouldn't have it otherwise. He was perfectly open about the experiment. Um, the other criticism is that the first person to be released from the experiment after two days... Um, many years later about 25 years later said that he'd only said that he was freaked out to get out of the experiment well the reality is and and the contracts exist the contract he signed exists and it said you could leave at any time and you'd be paid the full money so there was no reason for him to make up the state that 25 years later he claimed to have made up so i think i think the stanford prison experiment does stand i think we we have to be cautious about it but um, it's it's too easy to dismiss it. Well, then you should you should give us a brief a very brief rundown of it just for people who don't know and, and how that might relate to the brainwashing in Scientology. Yeah, um, Phil Zimbardo at Stanford University in I think 1971 um, put out an advertisement for summer jobs and he wanted students to participate in in a an experiment a study and they pulled together students they're all hippies none of them wanted to the, the idea was to separate them into jailers and prisoners none of them not one of them volunteered to be a jailer and so the the groups were made and what happened over a six-day period was that the guards became ever more abusive towards the prisoners um 
for example, having them uh, mimic uh, homosexual sex, um, calling them by numbers rather than by names, um, you know, reducing the amount of food they had. And the idea is that put into that context, then anybody or almost anybody will break and will start to, to you know, to commit evil. Zimbardo was following on his friend Stanley Milgram's Yale experiments on compliance, which had just shown that if you said to people, um, the experiment wishes you to continue, as if an experiment could have wishes, people would, 62.5% of people were willing to shock somebody up to the maximum, or they thought they were shocking somebody up to the maximum on a machine. 100% of people complied and were willing to shock somebody. Psychiatrists who were interviewed beforehand by Milgram, who was a very clever cove, um, said there was a, about 1% of people would be compliant. 100% were compliant. Yeah, I believe there are problems with that one as well, aren't there? Mil the Milgram experiment. There were also a lot of people take it. Maybe people are being persnickety or pernickety. About or finickety or, or persnickety. Um, or finickety. Who knows? Yeah, again, be because this is fundamental to the work I do, I'm, I'm very familiar with these studies. I've read Obedience to Authority by Milgram. Um, and I've read all of the, I think, all of the complaints that are being made. The, the primary complaint is that no ethical review board would permit the Milgram experiment to happen again because it, it might have been damaging for the participants afterwards to realise what they'd done. But as they were told afterwards that there were no shocks involved, they hadn't hurt anybody. And I don't believe there are any reports of trauma from... And he did the experiment 17 times in different settings, taking it further and further away from Yale, you know, to see why people were complying with authority. So uh, I think his conclusion is sound. Um, yes, you couldn't run the experiment anymore, but it was run. What's more, um, it was said, or maybe people knew they were complying. One of the follow-ups to Milgram, and I don't approve of this, but one of the follow-ups actually used puppies and did give them shocks. And people were willing to comply. People were willing to do this because the experiment demands that you continue. And so that's what's going on with Scientology, isn't it, really? We have an absorption of the, the techniques. I'm pretty sure that Ron Hubbard, he um, was on the run from possible extradition to France and he, he lay low in, in Queens in New York, 1972-73. And I'm pretty sure that in that period he read um, Robert Lifton's book on thought reform in modern China, which lays out the Chinese approach to breaking people, taming people, making people compliant. And I think we can say, looking at Chinese society, that it was pretty damn successful. Um, I would recommend to anybody the, the, the documentary One Child Nation to see how the Chinese people, you know, and, and there were mass executions, their form of brainwashing. There were also at least two and a half million people executed during the 1950 to 53 um, brainwashing camps, the thought reform camps, which of course re-emerged in Xinjiang not so very long ago. And the, what, what happens in that situation, what Lifton found, he interviewed 25 people who'd been through this, this process. They were largely Catholic priests, and so it does not represent what happened to the two classes of Chinese people that went through the camps, one of whom were what Marx called the lumpen proletariat, 
the ragged proletariat. And Marx, Engels, Lenin and Stalin uh, and George Bernard Shaw and D.H. Lawrence all believed that you should kill the lumpen proletariat. It's an astonishing statement, isn't it? But it's true. George Bernard Shaw, D.H. Lawrence believed in genocide um, for eugenic reasons. Mao came along and said, no, that they are the victims, the lumpen proletariat, and they were put through camps, prostitutes, thieves, beggars, sorcerers, people like that. They were put through camps to be to have it explained to them that they'd misunderstood the reality of the world. The reality of the world is that the rich people are forcing us to do these horrible things. So they went through one set of camps, but then the landlord class went through another set and many of them were executed as part of the process. The idea that the brainwashing program is purely psychological is nonsense. The brainwashing program was physical. People were beaten. People were beaten to death. Even in the, the camps for the, the ragged poor, people were beaten to death despite there being instructions that they should be kind to these people. This happened. So there, people were shackled. People were deprived of food. There were all sorts of things that went on. And of course, in the sea organisation, we see those things too. We see people being shackled. That's happened. We see people put into the labour camp, the rehabilitation project force, where they may not speak unless spoken to, where they eat scraps left over from the very poor food that the general crew get, where we see mattresses taken away um, and you're put into what's called pig's birthing. There's a very strong physical control that's happening over the top of the very strong psychological control. Now, as a public member of Scientology, never living member, I was only subjected to the psychological controls. Um, there were a couple of times when I was shouted at, I shouted back. I didn't realise I wasn't meant to, you know. Um, but, but that was it. I, you know, I was very, very lucky. Um, but it means that I understand the psychological processes. Now, when I... I used to go to the States in the 80s and 90s and I'd talk with people at, uh, who were working with cult groups. It was very common, I've, I've heard it in Europe too, that they'd be willing to work with people of any group at all but for Scientologists. Scientologists were just too complicated because you know, where Transcendental Meditation has two procedures, um, chanting the name of a demon or deity uh, until you get high, or um, playing leapfrog on your own, um, which can, of course, fracture your coccyx. I talked with a woman who in Transcendental Meditation, and she'll been in pain from that day to this, as a consequence of their stupid, you know, psychic hopping. But they have two techniques, and a lot of literature around it, but two techniques. Scientology has 2,000. And when you look at those techniques, they are classical hypnotic techniques. They're things that, it, that are, you know, when Stephen Hassan first saw a demonstration of training routine zero, which every Scientologist does, where you sit and confront a person, you're not meant to say stare, but you look them in the eyes for some hours, the bulletin says. And of course, you get what's called the Gansfeld effect. You, you know, things seem to melt and, you know, things become strange because when you don't have sensory input, the brain starts to fill in starts to create stuff so if you sit in a a silent dark room for 10 minutes Darren Brown did some stuff with this people will start thinking that things are moving in the room they'll start hearing sounds and it's all filling in it's like the feedback of of the brain itself so 
you get somebody to do one of these things. When Steve first saw this drill, he said, this is the most overt use of hypnosis I have ever seen in a cult. And that's coming from a guy who spent a year with Bandler and Grinder studying neuro-linguistic programming and then became an Ericksonian trainer. So he knows what he's talking about. When you look at many of the... And Charlie Manson, you know, the, that stare, that famous stare, that's the Scientology TR0 stare that you're seeing, the thousand-mile stare. You then have a lot of processes and wow, procedures. That's as, interesting. You have about 2,000 processes and procedures mm. which take apart everything about you. Um, one of the things that um, Tom O'Neill says about Jolly West is that he finds this little note where Jolly said that he's found out how to implant false memories. And he puts that forward as if that was something really revelatory. I did that on a daily basis in Scientology. You get people to remember their past lives and they tell the same ridiculous stories repeatedly. Karen de la Carrier told me that she'd had 200 people who'd been Jesus in an earlier life. <laughs> yeah, they've always been like Napoleon. Yeah, and, and that's, that's, <laughs> yeah, I, that's what you'll get. That, that, and, you know, the proof of their past lives would be so easy to do that when somebody says, you know, I was at the Battle of Agincourt in 1415, you say, which side were you on? And if they say the French, you say, speak to me. Speak to me in the French of, of the year 1415. It's not <laughs> no, it doesn't work happen. that way. It doesn't work that way, does it? No. It's, it's always like, oh, I, you know, I don't have the same memories. I don't have this. I don't have that. And then you're like, well, you know what? That's not the same person then, is it? I don't no. know. Hey, we're running, we're running low um, on time. Oh, um, no. But um, where, where can people go? And, and I know. Where, <laughs> where can people go and find all your stuff? I I've, no, I've said it at the beginning, but go well, on. I, I've written a variety of books. Um, if, if, if somebody wants to take a deep dive into Scientology and, it, and its past, um, let's sell these people a piece of blue sky. We've just released an audio book of Scientology, The Cult of Greed, which is a, a straightforward overview of, of some of the most damaging um, Scientology documents. And, and was it, it was originally a lecture that I gave with the idea that the people in the audience wouldn't, you know, have the Scientology dictionary in their heads and understand, you know, what an ARC break and a mist withhold is. Um, and, and who needs to, frankly? Um I've, my channel has over 400 videos on um, my subject matter essentially is authoritarianism so it's not Scientology it's not cults it's not politics it's not terrorism it's not gangsters it's all of those things you know including human trafficking pedophile grooming and how those things work from a psychological perspective that you can find in my book Opening Our Minds um, which uh, my friend Ari Chalef said uh, should be in, on every high school reading list. You know, every kid should read it because these are things that are not actually any of them being taught in our schools, which are by their nature authoritarian. They are not democratic in the way they function. They're, they're bully systems. Um, they don't need to be, and it's not good for kids. Thank you, John Atak, the marvellous John Atak. Please do support my guest by checking out his YouTube channel, maybe even subscribing to John Atak family and friends and getting hold of his book, A Piece of Blue Sky, about Scientology, Dianetics and L. Ron Hubbard exposed. Keep on listening. I've got this new studio. It's going to start sounding and looking even better and all that stuff. I'll see you guys soon.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 